I'm Matthew Stafford, and this is The Education of an Angel Investor, a podcast where I interview angel investors, some prolific ones and some pay-as-you-go, as I like to call it. By talking to these people, I hope to learn about the motivations and tactics behind why people invest in startups and what it takes to be a good one. Episode 7. I'm recording this today from the middle of Hyde Park after going for a walk here with Tim Jackson from episode one. So if there's any wind or background noise, that's why. I hope you enjoy it. Richard Koch is a former management consultant, entrepreneur, and the writer of several books. Richard has used the concepts he writes about to become a successful angel investor too. His angel portfolio includes Filofax, Plymouth Gin, and Betfair. Previously, he was a consultant at the Boston Consulting Group and later a partner at Bain & Company before starting his own management consulting firm, LEK. I first met Richard in 2017, and when I asked him to do this Q&A, I didn't realise he had a new book out. But, as a fan of the others, I was pleased to begin by asking him to tell me more about it. It's called uh, Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It. And the idea behind it is that I have taken 20 people who I think were unreasonably successful, and by that I meant that they, were, they changed the world, but in a way they didn't deserve it because they weren't necessarily more competent or better than their peers and all the rest of it. But somehow they, they had huge impact on the world. And I've discovered that they actually visited what I call nine landmarks, which are strategies or attitudes that they had, which somehow propelled them to success. And just to give a very quick example of that, um, they all had what I call a transforming experience. And a transforming experience means that when you go into the experience, you come out of it as a different person, as a much more powerful and effective person. And it could be, for example, a, a company that you, that you join, which has very unusual, rare knowledge, or it could be an experience that you have, which is either pleasant or in many cases unpleasant, but nevertheless, which equips you to go out and, uh, do very, very um, wonderful things. Just to give one very quick business example, Jeff Bezos, his um, experience happened when he was 26 years old. He'd been a, an investment banker. He hated Wall Street. He hated, you know, all the bullshit and all of the pretension and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but a headhunter sent him to off to talk to a very unusual quantitative uh, hedge fund called D.E. Shaw and Company, run by David Shaw, who was a, um, a computer science professor. And it was while he was at that company, he, he hit it off with David Shaw enormously, that Shaw and Bezos together wrote the blueprint for Amazon. They, the, the big thing that David Shaw knew, and this was back in 1992, was that the internet was going to be a fantastic resource for retail. And most people, you know, just didn't think that that was ever going to happen. So they put together a blueprint for what they called the, the everything store. And their first category was books. And it, it's, it's just amazing because it was absolutely the blueprint for, um, for Amazon. And then Bezos told David Shaw that he wanted to go off and do it on his own and David Shaw very generously allowed him to do that. So you know, that was a, a very, very effective uh, experience. So Richard thinks that the successful people in his book didn't necessarily deserve their success. They weren't any better than anyone else, but the 20 people he's written about visited what he calls landmarks. There are nine of them, which I like, 
but I wondered what Richard's own transformative experience was. For me, it was, it was you know, not that I'm in the same class as Bezos by any means, but, but it was joining the Boston Consulting Group and then Boeing Company who knew something which other people didn't know, which was that there was this funny thing called strategy consulting, which is very relevant to the investing side of things. And that uh, strategy consultants could make companies more successful. And, uh, you know, that, that was just something that everyone knows about nowadays, but very few people knew about in those days. Next, I wondered whether Richard started with those 20 amazing people in mind, or did he start by looking for transformative events and work back from there? Um, what, it, what it started with was reading uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, again, many years after it had been published. I was on a train from Paris to Lyon, and he has a theory, which is uh, you know, quite a well-known theory now, which is around the 10,000 hours, that you need 10,000 hours of experience in a very narrow area. And once you've got that, uh, you may be very successful. So he gives the example of the Beatles. They were just a very mediocre high school band in Liverpool, but they went off to the strip clubs of Hamburg and they played for eight hours a day, seven days a week for several years. And Lenin is quoted, Lenin is quoted as saying, we couldn't help improve with all the practice which we and he also quotes the example of Bill Gates, whose um, school had a computer long before other people had computers, and he spent hours and hours coding and so on and so forth. Um, the problem with the theory is not that it doesn't work for the Beatles or for Bill Gates, but it doesn't work for other people. And I thought to myself, could I find a universal explanation for you know, very high degree of success? And I took 50 subjects or 50 things that I thought might be a possible explanation. One which didn't get into the book, for example, was that these people took high risks. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to test it against 20 people whose stories I know personally, either because I knew the individuals involved, or more likely because some of the people were historical figures who died before I was born, uh, people who I knew about and I knew their story. Uh, and therefore I could tick off whether or not they actually uh, did have the, each of the experiences or the strategies in the book. And so I, I didn't cheat on this, Matthew. I actually did take 20 people and I, you know, basically if a criterion, if a landmark didn't work, I threw it out. So it's not really a book about investing, but it is a book about how to be successful. So it's not a book about investing, but I'm sure it can provide some inspiration to us. But on to investing specifically, how did Richard start? Was that after LEK? Did he invest once he'd exited that business? I also wondered if he'd ever sat down and analyzed the returns over the last 30 plus years of doing it. I also remember that when we went for lunch in Portugal one summer, he said quite strongly that success in business was all about the machine and the process, not necessarily the team or the founders. So I really wanted to dig into that with him. LEK was absolutely critical to me because it gave me the capital to invest. When I left LEK six years later in 1989, I took with me uh, £6 million before tax, £4 million after tax, and that was my sort of ammunition for doing uh, private equity investing or venture capital investing. So yes, it was absolutely crucial from that point of view. And um, I, I did this actually just two or three weeks ago. I decided it was time to look at what kind of returns I've got over time. And 
taking LEK as the first example where I, I put in uh, £250,000 of capital when, I, when we started the company and I took out £4 million of after-tax cash. I then looked at the returns that I've got over time and it's a 37-year period from 1983 to 2020 and I was amazed to find that the compound annual growth rate on assets was 22% which is just astonishing. So what, what happened in the early days was I, had, I was very lucky because we did Filofax, which made a seven times return. I started Belgo uh, together with uh, the guys who actually ran it. And that was you know, a, a much higher return. I can't remember the number, but it was, it was certainly in the 30s or 40s compound annual growth rate. And then uh, Plymouth Gin, which was which was a virtually defunct. It had a, it had a distillery, but that didn't actually <laughs> make any product at the time that we took it over. So we revived that and we discovered a formula which was in the attic for making Plymouth Gin in the, in the 1920s and 1930s, which involved having very high strength gin. And we were the first of the you know super premium gins and so on and so forth. The first few years were very, very successful. And then afterwards, uh, Betfair came along and, and so on and so forth. But the common thread and the reason that I think my investing is particularly interesting is not, has nothing to do with any genius or skill that I have. It's simply the formula which I follow, which is to invest in star businesses. I mean, I think the prime example is Betfair, where the people who started Betfair had this marvellous idea that they would have an electronic market for betting. And they were completely different from any other bookmaker because they didn't set odds. They got the general public, the, the people who wanted to place bets, to actually provide the liquidity and to say, you know, I, I, I will offer these particular odds. And it became an electronic market in the same way that the stock market, essentially, it's an electronic market. I mean, the model was there, but no one had applied it to betting. And because they were so different in their cost structure and in their charging structure for, you know, basically for large people, you would pay 2 or 3% commission, which um, is now 2% actually for everyone, and only on winning bets. So basically, the effective take was 1.5% or 1%. If you assume that you win half the time, you lose half the time. As against bookmakers who were taking and still take something like 10%, sometimes up to 20% on large horse races with lots of runners. And so it was, it was amazing value for money, but it was, you could also do things that you couldn't do with bookmakers. You could become the bookmaker effectively. You could, you could uh, offer odds. You could trade the odds so that if the odds moved in your favor, before an event started, you could actually make a profit. And so it attracted a lot of traders who thought they knew how to trade and spot which way the momentum in the market was going and so on and so forth. And it, you could bet in running because the machine was so fast that, that you know, it could, it could cope with actually real time um, during a race. You could bet at any point up until when the horse crosses the line, even afterwards if it was a photo finish. And so, you know, it was so much more fun and it was so much more interesting. Uh, but it was also incredible value for money. So it's created its own segment and it dominated its own segment and it still does. 
And so that is the model, you know, the BCG, good old BCG, gross share matrix, you know, the one with the cows and the dogs and the stars and the question marks. What BCG said in the early days, but they sort of, I think, partly forgot it, was that nearly all cash generated in a business comes from a company which has been or still is a star business. And you remember, if the market price goes down, you end up with a cash cow, a very profitable business, which doesn't consume very much cash and therefore throws off a lot of net cash. And so, you know, my investing is, is I will only invest in a business if I think it has the potential to be a star business or it already is. And if it, if it, if it, even if it's a star business, I want it to move to the left on the matrix with peculiar way of BCG operator was a higher, higher relative market share on the bottom axis it was on the left, not on the right. So it's kind of a bit weird. Uh, I just want it to be, uh, you know, to have as great a multiple of sales versus the next largest competitor as possible in the jargon, the relative market share. So all I do is buy businesses which are uh, star businesses. Try if they're not star businesses, but there's some momentum behind them and they're already moving in that direction, then I might invest in them. Um, put a lot of money into uh, uh, capacity, if that's important, and very often is manufacturing type businesses, uh, into marketing or whatever will move the relative market share. Don't really care about getting any cash out of the business for at least 10 years. It's a bit similar to the sort of thing that Bezos himself has done with Amazon, where you know he just wanted to grow and grow and grow. He said, we're going to take this thing to the moon. And uh, every time the board said, well, you know, when are we going to make a profit? He said, you know, you can't think more than 20, 20 minutes ahead in this game. So, so don't bother me with stuff like that. We'll, we'll eventually make a lot of money out of this business. And mm -hmm. so it's proved with a bit of huge bit of luck as well so that's all i do that's, you know and it, it you know i work on my portfolio probably about a day a week i don't have any full-time staff i do have uh, one or two people who help me with uh, numbers because i'm not very good at numbers but basically that's it you know there's no structure there's, there's no, almost no cost attached to the investing that i do it's a remarkable approach and he makes it sound so straightforward i'm learning a lot here and I love that Richard does this with no staff and no office to speak of. With such success though, is he still hungry for more? Every time, Matthew, that I, that I get cash, I want to employ it again. I've, I've already, you know, there are two or three companies I want to put money into at the moment. You know, I don't have a lot of money, but all of the money which I've, which I've had in the last two years has gone into one particular company to increase my share of the company. And the company itself is investing very heavily. It's actually probably slightly cash positive, but nevertheless, it's investing very heavily to grow its relative market share. And that's all I do, you know, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that, as, as always it is. But the objective is just to increase relative market share in a high growth market. And that's all I do. And it's dead easy. And anybody can do it. It's, it's described, by the way, in my book, The Star Principle, which I would recommend that anyone that's a private investor should buy the book and use it you know, and, and do that because, you know, the more people do it, the more the, you know, the, more the economy will grow and, of course, you'll make a lot of money along the way. A 22% compound annual growth rate is just amazing. It's astonishing. I mean, it's, it's sort of Warren Buffett type. What a track record. And I love that he's still keen for more. And the good thing for us is that he writes about all this in his books. As Richard has developed his framework for success, 
does he think that others are overthinking things or perhaps too emotionally driven? I think people don't believe it. I mean, I, I mean, if you believe it, I mean, I believe it because, well, firstly, I saw it at work at the Boston Consulting Group, and then I saw it at work in Bain & Company, and then I saw it at work in LEK. So by the time I started investing, I was, you know, I was a true believer. You know, I'm, I'm a sort of evangelical fundamentalist when it comes to investment, not when it comes to religion, I hasten to add. But, but you know, it's, it's true. You know, I think most people just don't believe it. If they did believe it, then they would do it. I know that there are there are people who are true believers. They write me emails. They they are angel investors or entrepreneurs, and they tell me great stories. And it's you know it's it works. It works for them. It works for me, and it'll work for anybody. You do, you know you don't need to be brilliant because I'm certainly not brilliant. You know you don't you don't need to even be good with numbers because I'm not particularly good with numbers. You know, what you do need to do is to, is to understand the concept and believe in it and act on it, that's all. So is it a case of understanding, setting things up, investing the money and then being patient? Yes, yes, you must be patient because all of the good returns that I've had have taken, uh, let's see, at least three years. Usually, uh, I suppose that the, the uh, mode or the mean is pretty similar number of years would be about eight or nine but there are some investments that i've held for 20 years and my best investment at the moment is one which i've been investing in for 15 years started with a very small stake and now i own about 60 percent of the company and i still want to increase that percentage because it's going to make an absolute fortune fascinating stuff but I still did want to understand where, in the importance of things, Richard places people now. You talk about people in the business. I'm, every, every, almost every venture capitalist and every private equity person says it's all about people, you know, and, and indeed that's your approach as well. And of course people are terribly important. And of course there are some people who, who will make a success out of almost anything and they will you know, change tack and they will do what, you know, they'll somehow find a way of making it work. So, yeah, of course, people people are important. But I cite Exhibit A for me is Betfair because these guys, the guys who started Betfair, had never, ever run a business before. None of them, absolutely none of them, which is why they couldn't attract any professional money. There was no institution which would invest in them. It was all friends and family. Uh, all of whom made a huge amount of money out of Betfair. But the people who were running a company, you know, for the first three, four, five years, really didn't know what they were doing. I mean, they, of course they knew what they were doing because they had the idea of this business and they were passionate about it and they believed in it and it worked. But, you know, as far as professional management is concerned, you know, no. <laughs> they just did not have the experience. It did not matter. I mean, eventually... It took quite a long time, but eventually they did get a very, very good person to, to run the business. And, you know, I have to take my, my hat off to Ed Ray, who, who was the guy who was, I think he was a debt trader with Morgan Stanley, and he became the chief executive and then later the chairman of the company. And he was very important in maintaining the integrity of the business, I think more important than anything else. And, you know, he, he, he was a person of, uh, he was a person of great vision and the guy who actually devised the system, um, who was a guy called Andrew Black or Bert to his friends, you know, I mean, he, he, you know, he, he was an absolute genius as well. But in terms of conventional management, no, absolutely not. 
What terrific insights from an incredibly successful investor with views and an approach quite different to mine. And I loved our chat even more for it as it's hearing from a wide variety of views that we can reflect and improve. Thanks for listening. I'm Matthew Stafford and this is the education of an angel investor. You can find out more at matthewstafford.substack.com.